This morning we are continuing our series in Mark and we'll be looking at verses 32 to 52 of chapter 10. And I have titled this message this morning, Being a Disciple of Jesus. And we're going to look at two aspects of discipleship. The first is suffering for Jesus. That will be verses 35 to 40. And we will then look at serving for Jesus in verses 41 to 45. And then finally, we'll finish by looking at an example of becoming a disciple of Jesus, which is my point number three, simply by faith in Jesus. And that will be verses 46 to 52. And rather than reading the chapter all at once at the start, let's begin by setting the scene by reading verses 32 to 34 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Amen. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, we read, alongside his 12 disciples and some other pilgrims. And we read that he prophesies or he predicts to his disciples of his imminent betrayal, trial, death and resurrection. And in fact, this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection to his disciples in Mark. The last two happening in chapters eight and nine. So you'd think by now the disciples would believe him and understand why he is going to Jerusalem. We read in Luke 18 of this same event that they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So even having spent years with Jesus, the Son of God, they still did not understand why he had come to earth. They did not understand the Messiah, the Savior, had to suffer and die for them to be saved. They still held their false beliefs, as with the Jews of the time, that the long-promised Messiah was to be a political leader, one who was going to give them victory over their enemies on earth, one who would then reign as king in Jerusalem over an independent Jewish nation. Because of their incorrect expectations of the Messiah, they could not possibly understand that Jesus had to die. In their mind, suffering and death did not mean victory. But Jesus knows exactly why he came to the world. We're told in Luke 9, verse 51, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's nothing that will stop Jesus getting to Jerusalem to accomplish what he came to this world for. Not to overthrow the government to rule as king, but to take the punishment for our sins by dying on the cross. I mentioned this was the third time in Mark that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection to his disciples. And there is a similarity to each of these predictions. They're each followed by the disciples failing or responding incorrectly to Jesus, which then leads to Jesus teaching them something about discipleship. And as a quick reminder, the first prediction was in Mark 8, where Jesus rebuked, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus after Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And then Jesus commands the disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. The second is in Mark 9. The disciples do not understand what he is saying, are too afraid to ask him about it. And then Jesus teaches them that the first must be last and that those who receive him or receive children in his name also receive him. So here tonight, well, this morning, we have Christ's third and final prediction of his death and resurrection in Mark. 
and it follows the same pattern of a failure on the part of the disciples, and then Jesus will teach on discipleship. With that in mind, let's read the next portion of our passage this morning, verses 35 to 40 of Mark chapter 10, and we'll see how the disciples failed in their response this time. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. I've named this first section of our message this morning, Suffering for Jesus. And this might not be what you immediately think of on first reading this passage. It certainly wasn't for me. But we'll see that Jesus's reply to James and John's request refers not only to his own suffering, but to that of them and his disciples as well. So we read that James and John, these are two of Jesus's disciples, approach him after he has predicted his death and resurrection. And we might have expected them to ask him about this, to get some understanding of what he means, maybe to clarify what he means. But instead they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And just in the way that they ask this question, immediately we get an impression or an insight into their motivations. They don't ask him their real question straight away. They try and have Jesus agree to their request before they've even asked it. And Jesus, being the son of God, obviously knows what they're going to say, what they're going to ask for. But he asks them anyway, what do you want me to do for you? And they reply, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. See, James and John still do not understand why Jesus came into the world. As I mentioned, like the Jews, they were expecting Jesus to be a political or even a military leader, one who would defeat their enemies and then reign as king in Jerusalem. And this would then usher in a period or an eternity in their mind of peace and prosperity on earth. And while we know from our Bibles that Jesus will one day come to reign over the earth, his first coming was not for this purpose. And the disciples did not yet understand this. So here I suggest when James and John asked to Jesus to sit on his right and on his left in his glory, they're not asking about that future kingdom in heaven, but imminently on earth. They want positions of power and glory in the government that they think he was approaching Jerusalem to establish. James and John both think they deserve the greatest positions in Jesus's kingdom. But we then read Jesus's reply in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Again, James and John do not understand. They fail to understand what they are asking. Their minds are focused merely on the present, while Jesus's is on eternity. Jesus knows that there will be a future time of glory, as we've seen in Mark 8, where Jesus says to those who are ashamed of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. But James and John think that this is imminent. Their minds are focused on the present, while Jesus's is on eternity. Jesus continues in his response to their request, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
Jesus here is asking a rhetorical question. That's one which doesn't require or shouldn't require an answer of whether James and John are able to drink the cup or be baptized with the baptism that he will. And here, a brief explanation, the cup is referring, it's not a literal cup, it's referring to God's wrath that will be poured out on people because of their sin. We see this in Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And we read of this also in Isaiah 51, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So the cup here that Jesus is referring to is God's wrath that we be poured out over him on the cross, bearing the punishment in our place that our sins deserve. Jesus will drain every last drop from this cup. He will take the entirety of our punishment. There'll be nothing left over. For those who trust in Jesus, we will not suffer our just punishment for God's wrath at all, for he has already taken it from us. He has already drunk every last drop. For those who trust in Jesus, we will not suffer our just punishment of God's wrath, for he has already taken it. Jesus' baptism that he then refers to, it does not refer to Christian baptism. There's a baptism tank underneath me here, and this involves a professing believer being immersed in water, which Jesus commands we do elsewhere. This does not refer to Christian baptism. Rather, it refers to his suffering, his death, being completely immersed, submerged in the suffering of his punishment or our punishment for sin. So Jesus' question is obviously rhetorical, as obviously James and John could not drink the cup or be baptized with Jesus' baptism, for only the perfect, spotless Son of God could pay the sin, the penalty for sin, under God's wrath. But we then see their reply to this rhetorical question, verse 39, they said to him, we are able. Again, they don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. They're focusing their minds on earth, likely thinking that Jesus is asking them whether they're willing to fight physically for him in Jerusalem, which they say they're willing to do. Obviously, you'd hope they would be. But Jesus replies, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And Jesus is not saying that they will similarly take the wrath of God for the sins of the world, because he is the only perfect man that could do that but he is speaking in their earthly terms now. He's speaking on their level. He's saying that they will both, James and John, will undergo suffering for him. They'll undergo suffering for him on earth. And we see this coming true later on in our Bibles. For James in Acts 12, verse one to two, we read that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And for John in Revelation 1, 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Jesus knows that James will be the first apostolic martyr, the first to give their life for his faith, and that John will suffer persecution leading to exile to the Isle of Patmos. Jesus knew that both of them were going to suffer for their faith as disciples they would drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. So we've seen James and John approach Jesus, asking that they might have seats of power, authority, and glory on earth. But they come away being told that they will suffer. They will suffer on earth instead. 
And I think this is a lesson and a challenge for Christians, those who are disciples, those who are followers of Jesus today. We aren't to think of Jesus as a way to gain power, authority, and glory during our brief lives on earth. Instead, we are to expect and be willing to suffer for our faith. The good news of the gospel is not that once you accept Jesus, your life will be perfect. The good news of the gospel is that once you've accepted Jesus as your saviour, you will spend eternity with him. The good news of the gospel is that once you accept Jesus as your saviour, you will live with him for eternity. And one day we will reign with him. And we're reminded of this in Romans 8, verse 17 to 18, where we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But before this glory, disciples of Jesus, you will be experiencing suffering. So before this glory, be prepared, be willing, be ready to suffer for your faith, submitting to God's will for your life. Because Jesus continues in verse 40 of our passage, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Matthew 20 adds to the same section by my father to the end of that. So to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared by my father. There are rewards in heaven for earthly service and seats of honor next to Christ. And I don't know what these will look like or entail, but we don't, er, we don't get these rewards or sit in these seats merely by asking as James and John did or tried to do. These are earned through faithful service to God after accepting Jesus as your savior through faith alone. These have been prepared by the Father and we must submit to God's will for our future just as Jesus does being willing and prepared to suffer for him as his disciples. So suffering is part of being a disciple of Jesus. And as we continue through our passage, verse 41 will show us the other disciples' reaction to James and John's request. And then following this pattern that I discussed earlier of his predictions of his death and resurrection, he will then teach them something about discipleship. Specifically, we'll see being a disciple of Jesus means to serve which brings us to my second point, being a disciple involves service for Jesus. So let's read the next portion of scripture, Mark 10, verses 41 to 45. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this passage, we see the reaction of the other 10 disciples to James and John's request. When they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So I didn't know what indignant meant. I maybe assume some of you don't as well. So while Jesus had tried to correct James and John's understanding, we see the disciples were indignant. That means they were angry at the request, which they perceived was unfair treatment against the rest of them. That's what indignant means. Angry at the perception of unfair treatment. 
And I'd suggest the reason that the disciples were angry at this request is because they too wanted these positions of power, authority, and glory that they anticipated being available in Jerusalem. And they felt they were being cut out by James and John. The reason I believe this is because we'll see Jesus in a moment calls them all over to teach them that being a follower of Jesus requires service. He doesn't just speak to James and John about this. He speaks to them all and that being a follower of Jesus requires service, being a slave to others. But before then, verse 42, Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. The disciples know, we are told, that there are those who have positions of power and authority who lord it. Again, I had to search what this meant. That is to act in a superior and domineering manner. That's what lording means. The disciples know there are those who lord it and there are those who exercise their power abusively over others. These are people who use their position, whatever that might be, to get what they want, using their power for selfish purposes and personal gain. I think it's exactly the same in the world today. It is easier for the corrupt, the unscrupulous, to claw their way to the top, standing on top of others to do so. And this results in people in positions where they can abuse their power. Those of virtue find it extremely hard to fight against this. So we can see it's easier for those of poor character to take seats of power and to then retain it. We've seen it across our country before. Those who lie are those who remain in charge, while those who follow what the Bible says get ridiculed, they get undermined, and they get overlooked. But amid a world of corruption and those who lord power and their authority over others, Jesus continues in verse 33 to 34. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So greatness as a follower of Jesus is not characterized by power or authority, but by service, even becoming as a slave to others. And this is definitely a challenge to me, as I'm sure it will be to some of you as well. How are we using any authority that we have? While Jesus says it is the rulers of the Gentiles, these are those who are the top of the hierarchy who lord their power over others and abuse their authority, I wouldn't think that many of us would consider ourselves rulers here this morning. But many of us do have power and authority delegated to us. That might be in school, it might be in your families, in your jobs, in the church, or it might be in caring for someone else. Whatever positions that we have been given, Jesus is telling us that we're responsible not to exercise our authority or gifts, whatever we've been given, selfishly, not to lord them over others, but instead to use our positions and authority to serve others, to lead by example, becoming, as it were, a slave of others' needs. The world, by and large, measures greatness by how many people serve you. Jesus says it should be the opposite with us. True greatness, truly following, being a disciple of Jesus, is found in how many people to whom you are serving. So as we consider any gifts we might have or any authority that has been delegated to us, let's all ask ourselves if we are using them to serve others. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3 to 4, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. We then come to an incredible truth in verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If the Son of Man, the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, did not come to the earth to be served, but to serve, how much more are we to seek to do the same? He came to serve. And what was the pinnacle of the service? We're told to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. And a ransom, I didn't know what that was before I started this sermon, is something that is paid to provide the release of someone who is held captive or in prison. And you might be familiar with this from movies where the villain will take someone or something of value and then demand a ransom or a payment for its return. But you might be asking yourself, why am I a captive? Why do I need to be ransomed? Well, we read in our Bibles that God is completely holy and he demands too that we be holy. But when we disobey him, which the Bible calls sin, we fall short of his holy standard. And we all do sin. We all disobey God. Romans 3, 23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and disobeyed God. And as he is just, he's just, he can't uh, brush sin under the carpet, as it were. He must punish our sin, our disobedience against him, our falling short of his perfect holiness. God must punish sin. In the Old Testament, we read that God commanded animal sacrifices to take place for sin. The animal died in the place of the sinner. The animal was the ransom for the people's sin. In the New Testament, which is the later part of the Bible, these, we're told that these animal sacrifices merely pointed to, pointed forward, were a shadow of a greater sacrifice that was to come. You might have guessed it. That's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus, because he lived a perfect sinless life, was able to take the sin, the punishment for sin that your sins and my sins deserve. And we've already read of the cup and the baptism of suffering, which Christ knew he was to experience at the pouring out of God's wrath on him. And we're told this is why Jesus came to earth, not to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to earth to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus paid the required ransom to set us free from sin, death, and hell. The ransom was his own life, the shedding of his blood, a sacrifice pleasing to God. Because of his sacrificial death, each person on earth has the opportunity to accept this gift and be forgiven by God and to spend eternity with him. Without accepting his death, Jesus' death for yourself, God's just punishment for sin would still need to be satisfied by your own death and eternal separation from God. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who had supreme power and authority, he did not lord it over others or exercise it selfishly. Neither did he only show love and serve those who were easy to serve, who loved him in return. Romans 5, 6-8 confirms this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's easier for us to love and serve those who we like, who appreciate our service, who say thank you. But we are called to imitate Jesus, becoming a servant. And as our passage says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, not just slave of those who love you, those who are worth your time as you might consider it. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, not just those who treat us well. Disciples of Jesus are to follow his example and serve. So we've seen being a disciple of Jesus means we're willing to suffer for him and that we will serve him by serving others. Now let's see an example of someone becoming a disciple of Jesus. How? Simply by faith in him. Let's read verses 46 to 52 of Mark chapter 10. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Jesus and his disciples have arrived at Jericho, their final stop before Jerusalem. And as they are now leaving, we're introduced to a blind beggar, a man named Bartimaeus, who was sitting by the roadside. Now, for those who are blind at this time, begging was their only option to earn money so they could support themselves. This is mainly because people at the time, including the Jewish religious leaders, thought that if you were blind, you were under divine judgment from God. They thought you were blind because God was punishing you. And even Jesus' disciples got this wrong in John 9, verse 2, when they ask him concerning a blind man, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? With Jesus then correcting their misunderstanding that blindness was not a punishment. So here's Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside, begging by those who pass by, hoping that they'll give him some money. And as he hears that Jesus is passing by, he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Now, if you're familiar, which I assume most of you will be with the Christmas story, we don't hear of Mary and David going to Bethlehem, but Mary and Joseph. So why is this man calling Jesus the son of David? It's not a case of mistaken identity but it's a reference to the promised messianic deliverer, the savior, from the line of King David, whose kingdom we are told in the Bible will continue forever. So Bartimaeus has correctly identified Jesus as this promised Messiah, the promised savior of the world that God would send, a descendant of King David, the son of David. And Bartimaeus cries out to him, verses 47 to 49, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling you. 
people initially rebuked Bartimaeus because in their eyes, he was not worthy of Jesus's time, of Jesus's attention. So Bartimaeus cries out all the more and Jesus stops and calls him. We then see verse 50 and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Bartimaeus sprang up, throwing off his cloak. I think there is quite a special image here. A blind man's cloak was his most valuable asset. They'd usually only have one, given they were poor, and they'd use this to keep warm during the day, as well as for protection. A blanket to sleep under during the night, and then they would sit on it and spread it out in front of them during the day to collect any coins that passers-by would give them. So when throwing it off, casting it away as he went to Jesus, even before he was healed, he was displaying complete faith that he would never need that cloak again that Jesus was able to and would restore his sight. We see a picture here of him throwing off his old life and embracing his new identity in Christ. Verse 51 continues, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked the same question he asked of James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Again, being the son of God, obviously Jesus knows what Bartimaeus is going to ask for. But he gives Bartimaeus the opportunity to display his faith and his trust by letting him answer the question, to which he replies, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Unlike James and John, Bartimaeus did not ask Jesus for something selfishly. He asked that he might have his sight restored so that he could follow Jesus. And Jesus, unlike for James and John, grants his request. Yes, Bartimaeus knew he had a physical need to have his sight restored. But he also understood his greater spiritual need. He cried out for mercy to be forgiven his sins because he knew he has a just and holy God. He cried out to be forgiven his sins through Jesus, the son of David, the promised savior. And it's Jesus who says, It was his faith that made him well. It was not money, power, authority, because he had none of these. It was not even by any good deed that he was healed, but simply by his faith alone. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9 confirms, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Bartimaeus had thrown off his cloak, his old way of life, and was now a follower, a disciple of Jesus. God had used Bartimaeus' weakness to help him identify his greater need for forgiveness of his sins. We read throughout the Bible of God's care for those considered the lowly of society. He frequently uses the weak, the marginalized, to accomplish his will and to bring about their salvation. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Romans 10, 9 then tells us how we too can be saved. Tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So like Bartimaeus, have you identified your need for spiritual healing today, your need for mercy? Have you cried out to God for healing 
in faith accepting Jesus as your saviour. Hebrews 11, 8 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God will not ignore the cry of one truly calling out for forgiveness. Are you a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Have you accepted him simply by faith? And will you spend eternity with him in heaven? In closing, we have seen that to become a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is simply by faith in him and his sacrifice that our sins deserve. And that's why many of us are here this morning, because we have encountered Jesus along the road of our lives. In our spiritual blindness, in our desperation, he passed by and our hearts were awakened and we cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he heard our cry and he called us to him. Have you accepted that Jesus has drunk the cup, has gone through the baptism of the cross, taking God's wrath for your sins? If not, you will drink of that cup of wrath one day, spending an eternity away from Christ and God in a place we're told there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Accept Christ as your saviour today and no peace with God for eternity. And for those who have accepted Christ and follow him as his disciples, we need to seek to imitate him. We are to be willing to suffer for him and to be seeking to serve others for him, looking forward to the future glory and rewards of an eternity spent with him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We've been able to come before you. We've been able to sing your praises. We've been able to sing of that amazing grace that you have given, that you offer us through Christ. We pray for each and every one here this morning who has heard from your word that there is a need to have their sins forgiven. We pray for those who have not yet accepted Christ as their saviour, who have not accepted the ransom, the price that was paid by Christ's death, we pray that they would accept him this morning, this afternoon, that they would know peace with you from now on, and that they would be able to look forward to an eternity in heaven, worshipping you, worshipping Christ, their Savior. We pray for those who have already accepted Christ, who know him as their own, who's paid the punishment for their sins. We pray as we go into this week, you'd bless us with servant hearts, that we'd look to Christ and seek to imitate him, serving others to become a slave of all. We pray for the authority and power you've given to us, that we would use that for your glory to serve others, not to puff ourselves up, not so that we could lord it over others to get our own selfish way, not to abuse it over others, but that we'd seek to serve. We pray that we'd be light and salt in the world that we go into, that people would notice the difference that Christians are in the way they serve, in the way they lead. And we pray that this would cause others to turn to you as well. We pray that you give us the right words to say in these moments as we proclaim Christ and tell them of the good news of the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We pray that they would accept him as their own. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks powerfully and nothing will return to you void from it. We just pray for salvation for each and every one of those who do not know you here this morning. So we thank you for these things and ask them in Christ's name. Amen.